Amen. Wow. That was awesome. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's a calling on all of us. Uh, One of the things you get to meet in life, or one of the people you get to meet in life sometimes, occasionally you meet somebody who takes their lives or their life, and they do give it to the Lord. And, uh, And it's amazing to see what God will do in a life that is consecrated and given over to Him. And one of the people that I've gotten to know and have had the privilege of becoming friends with who has done that is Doug Souter. Doug is uh, one of the pastors over at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, a church that we hold in very high regard. And he's also the president of Four Kids of South Florida, a, a ministry that we as a church have been very, very much involved with and for good reason. And so it's my privilege today to introduce Doug to you. I know he knows so many of you already, but he is coming to bring us God's Word this morning. And uh, having heard it once already, I'm excited to hear it a second time. So it's my privilege to sit under your teaching today, buddy. Come on up and let's make Doug feel wonderful. Second, I embarrass you again. So it's someone's birthday today on the stage, and it's not mine. So, yeah. So, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking at some churches, they give like the pastor like a Cadillac or like wow. a Mercedes Benz for the birthday. But what you could do, I knew you would never drive that. But you This is where actually, I turn as red as my shirt, by the way. So but you could, actually keep sell, going. you could actually sell to help the kids in foster care. I'm you know, that would if they give me one, I will. <laughs> How about that? It's a deal. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Good, good. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And uh, this feels like family. I was telling Tom, I know more people here, I think, than I know at Calvary, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking from one person to the next person to the next person. Um, and, and it feels a lot like home. So thanks for the, the warm welcome. And thanks for just your heart. I know this church is one of those churches in the community. Um, I tell Ken all the time, everywhere I go, I'm telling people, hey, this Rio is like the best kept secret. You guys got to check this church out. It's a really cool church. Um, because you guys are doers. And uh, when it comes to four kids and foster care and the, and the things that you guys are doing, really, we're very thankful for, for this church. So just want to express that. Um, we're going to be talking about God's family today. So if you have a Bible and you want to open to Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to start. And I'm going to share with you kind of the, the motivation for this message. I was in Haiti about five weeks ago been to Haiti a couple times since the earthquake, and we were at a pastor's conference. There's this organization called Churches Helping Churches, and it's this kind of national movement of U.S. churches who are saying, regardless of denomination and regardless of, uh, of connection, we're going to go and help rebuild churches and help disciple pastors and give them Bibles and resources they need to help build their churches back up that were destroyed in the earthquake. And so we got 150 pastors together from many different denominations and held this pastor's conference in Haiti uh, just five weeks ago. And I was one of the pastors, and we started talking uh, through translators. My translator's name was Zamor. Um, great guy. Um, really connected with him. And everywhere I went, he was with me. And we were talking and, and teaching. And we sat down for dinner one night. It was kind of the culmination. All these pastors, their wives, all of us together. 150 people out on a concrete slab in the middle of, you know, Haiti. Enjoying rice and beans and, and just a, a feast in Haiti. Um, not, not, not a feast by our standards necessarily, but a feast by theirs. And, and Zamor sat us down with three other Haitian pastors. There were five of us American pastors. And we started to eat. And then Zamor got up and left. And it was one of those weird things because now we're trying to, to talk to these pastors. And we realized, like, our communication bridge is gone. I know three words in Creole. Ça uh, passe, bonjour, and merci beaucoup. Hi, goodbye, thank you, something. I don't even know. I mean, and so I'm like... 
you didn't even know what to say. And after a while, the five of us had a conversation and three of them had a conversation. I was so frustrated. You ever been frustrated by a language barrier like that? You're like, I, I so want to communicate. I, I so want to tell this person, you know, what I think. Or I wanted to ask them, you know, hey, tell me about the earthquake. Tell me about what's happened since. And we were, there was just nothing. And so I started to think, how did this happen, this whole language thing? And, and, and why do we all look so different? And where did this all start? And you know, like anything, the answers are found in the Bible, and we're going to find those answers today as we talk about God's family. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read to you a verse that's very familiar to you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Here's what the Bible says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock and the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the earth. So God created man... In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see this phrase over and over. Image, likeness, image, likeness, image. That we are created in God's image. Now, when I think of the word image or likeness, I think of a dad sitting next to his son, and someone walks up to him and goes, you know, he's a spitting image of you. Like, he looks like you, he acts like you, he's like a mini you. Or they say about a mom and a daughter, man, there's such a likeness to you two. It's, it's just amazing how much you look alike. And the Bible says that God made all of us in his image, so here's the question. So what does God look like? Well, today I'm going to show you what God looks like. And I want you to look on the screen. I want you to see the image of God. Now, when you look at that image, you say, well, God's a little girl? What do you mean? No, and I mean, when you see her, what do you see? The imprint of God. I see purity. I see love. Look at this next image. Tell me what you see. I see integrity. I see hard work. I see a man who never quits. Look at the next image. Tell me what you see. I see joy. I see creativity in this little girl. Look at the next image. What do you see? The image of God. I see hope. I see joy. In the next image, I see courage. I see a boy who's brave. And in the last image here, I see loyalty and love of family. That is the image of God, you see, in every single one of us. It's not physical. It's an imprint. It's, it's part of who we are. That God put in every single person his characteristics as an imprint. Now, sometimes those imprints are hard to see. Sometimes when you're looking at your kids or your wife, like, oh, I don't see joy, I don't see hope, I don't see... Or maybe, maybe, maybe worse, you look at your boss at work. There's nothing about God in that guy. I'm telling you, man. He's hidden it well. Listen, sin hides the image of God. It mars the image of God. But in every single one of us, the image is there. The imprint's there. Because the Bible says we were created in his likeness and in his image. So why do we all look so different? Why do we speak different languages? The Bible has a historical record of why that happened. And if you look at Genesis chapter 11 and then Genesis chapter 10, you'll see kind of why we are at the place where we're at. Now, if you've ever heard of the Tower of Babel, you know that we all spoke one language at one time. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 says, in in that time, everyone spoke a common language. But then all of a sudden, when God said, now scatter across this earth, I made this beautiful earth, scatter, multiply, have children, enjoy, take dominion over it, it's here, it's yours. They said, no, well, we don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to stay here and we want to make our name great. And that's the line in Genesis 11. We want to make our name great. We want to do our own thing. We want to do it our way, to which God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to confuse your language. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible says that the Lord scattered them from over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. 
And that's why they called it Babel, because the Lord confused their language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered people over the face of the whole earth. Now, where did they go? And again, why do we look different? Well, I'm going to show you in Genesis chapter 10 a picture of a map, and I'm going to put the map on the board right here, because you can trace where you came from as one of the three sons of Noah from this passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 10. Now, Genesis chapter 10 is kind of one of those things when you read it, it's like, these are the accounts of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you, and you stop right there and you go, okay, turn the page. It's just a list of people who had babies, who had babies, who had babies, and great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers and all that stuff. But when you actually stop and look at it, you're like, you know, there's nothing like this in all of ancient literature that tells us where we came from. That you can look and say, you know, the sons of Japheth, If you look in red, after the flood, they migrated north. They became the coastal people of Greece and Rome. They they migrated east to Europe. They migrated migrated west to Europe. They migrated east to to Asia. So if you look at where you came from in your heritage, you can say, oh, oh, that's me. I'm a son of Japheth. If you see uh, the green area, the sons of Ham, they migrated south and they became the African people. And if you see the the Arabian Peninsula in purple, those were the sons of Shem, the Arabs and the Jews. They're also called Semites. And so you can look at the population of the world right now and say, wow, I didn't know the Bible could actually trace back where I came from in the line of Noah, but it's right here in Scripture. And it gives this amazing explanation for what happened. But Genesis 10 says this, that they all settled in their own groups. It says they all developed their own language and their own clans and their own culture. So kind of here's what happened. As God dispersed the people, as they had their separate language group, they started to move. And as they went to different cultures, and as they went to different um, environments, well, they they, they adopted different customs, different, different foods they ate, different clothes they wore, different songs they sang. Even genetically, people started to, with dominant and recessive genes, have certain traits they developed in one way or another way. And now you look at the world and you go, why do people look so different? Because the Bible describes this process of the separation of the nations. Now, what does this have to do with us? And what does this have to do with God's family? Well, there's something that happens when you form a group. And when you form a group, it could be a really good thing or it could be a really bad thing. When you form a group, it's kind of cool because it's like, hey, this is my group. We get together, we barbecue, we have fun. I know how they think. We laugh at the same jokes. We like the same music. We like the same sports team so we can have all this commonality about us. But there's something bad about a group too. And the bad thing about a group is, oh man, we have fun together, but you know that, those people, they're not really like us, so we don't really hang out. In fact, we can define our group by who's in it and who's not in it. So since you're not in our group, you are, that, that's my identity. Now I'm, I'm going to just do a real quick survey, because this can be really si- silly and playful, but it can also be very serious. So I'm going to ask you a question. Who here is a Miami Heat fan and you're excited about this coming season? Raise your hand. All right. A couple more than last service. All right. How many of you are like disgruntled Cleveland Cavalier fans and you're just bitter because we took your best player? Raise your hand. None? Okay, not many. All right, how many of you guys don't care at all? Raise your hand. Okay. All right, so we have, we have three separate groups in this room. We have the, the, the Miami Heat fans, and, and some of you guys might paint your face red and black. Some of you might just pay a little more to, to go to the game. Um, some of you guys are, well, there's no disgruntled Cleveland Cavalier fans here. And then, and then some of you guys are like, you know, I'm not really a basketball fan. I don't really care. Listen, at the end of the day, no matter how passionate I am as a Miami Heat fan, if I, if I paint my face red and black, at the end of the day, I'm going to wash it off and go to work the next day and do life. But what if the groups, what if it was more serious than that? What if you couldn't actually take the uniform off? What if you lived in a certain group 
or you looked at a certain way because you were in a certain group and you wore that all the time. Here's the problem with groups, and I'm going to read this. It comes from J.B. Phillips who wrote the, the Bible, The Message, and this is his introduction to the book of Luke. Most of us, most of the time, can feel left out, like we don't belong. Other people seem so confident, they're so sure of themselves, they're like insiders who know the ropes, old hands from a club from which we're excluded. One of the ways we have to responding to this is to form our own club, our own group, one that will have us. And here is at least one place where we are in and other people are out. The one thing these groups all have in common is the principle of exclusion. Identity or worth is achieved by excluding all but the chosen. This is a terrible price that we pay for keeping all the other people out so we can savor the sweetness of being an insider. You see, we all kind of do this. We're we're all kind of guilty. Have you ever been on the outside looking in? And I wish I could be part of that group. I wish they would invite me. I wish they could... They would talk to me. I, I wish I could be, but I feel like I'm just not good enough or I don't belong or there's this thing, that, this, this thing that blocks me. And some of you guys know what it's like to go, well, fine, then I'm going to make my own group and, and I like this group and, and we're in and, and they're not and I feel good because I have my identity in this group. Listen, God has some things to say about that because that can get dangerous and that can get weird because the group can start to say, listen, not only is this group better uh, our customs, the way, we, the way we eat, how we, how we look at how we spend time, what, what is the value of our community is better than them. In fact, I think God likes us more than he likes them. In fact, I think God is a lot more like us than he is like them. And the Bible says, be very careful because sometimes you can make God in your own image. The book of Romans says, be very careful not to make God in your image because remember, you were made in his image. But, but I'm going to show you what happens. I'm going to show you a picture of Jesus. A picture that you've probably seen before. And you look at that picture and you go, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus. That's a European Jesus with blue eyes. Jesus probably didn't have blue eyes. Look at the next picture. You see an African Jesus. Jesus wasn't African, but yeah, there's a picture of him. And then I'm going to show you the next picture. There's an Indian Jesus, and Jesus clearly wasn't Indian. And you look at the next picture and you see a Chinese Jesus. And you're like, wait a second. Jesus was Palestinian. He was Middle Eastern. He's not any of those things, but yet people have those pictures in their churches. People have those pictures on their walls. And what they're ultimately saying is, I want Jesus to be like me, or I think Jesus is like me, because if he's like me, then maybe, maybe, maybe he's not like them, and maybe I've never really thought about it. But we have to be very, very careful about the images we portray of God and Jesus, because if we want them to be like us, then we'll be guilty of making Jesus in our own image. And the Bible says, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, How does this kind of subtle thing happen? How does it happen where one group starts to look at another group and say, we're better than you? Well, I want to share with you an experiment that was done in a classroom in 1968. This was done by a third grade teacher named Miss Jane Elliott, and it was done a week after Martin Luther King was assassinated. She was in Iowa, in the the Midwest, and she was frustrated by this lack of understanding between groups. And so she did this, what is a very daring experiment as a teacher. She told her class that blue-eyed children were superior to brown-eyed children. She gave them extra privileges, second helpings at lunch, access to the new jungle gym, five minutes extra recess. She would not allow blue-eyed children and brown-eyed children to drink from the same water fountain. She would offer blue-eyed children praise for being hardworking and intelligent, and the brown-eyed children she would disparage. She would say things like this, you'll notice we're always waiting for the brown-eyed children. They're not as smart as blue-eyed children. 
At first, the class resisted this idea that brown-eyed children were not equal to blue-eyed children. So to counter this, she offered a pseudo-scientific explanation saying that melanin was responsible for making blue-eyed children higher in intelligence and, and ability. Those who were deemed superior, she also, I'm sorry, those she deemed superior became arrogant and they became bossy and otherwise unpleasant to their inferior classmates. Their grades also improved doing mathematical and reading tasks that seemed outside of their ability the day before. The inferior classmates also transformed into timid and subservient children, including those who had previously been dominant in class. The academic performance suffered even with tasks that had been simple before. There was a fight at recess on the first day. The response of the boy, he called me brown eyes, so I hit him in the gut. I watched a cooperative, loving, unified class turn into a conniving, vicious group of predators. What happened? This teacher decided to give a little input on the differences that kids naturally see. See, kids naturally see color. You know if someone's a different color than you or a different gender than you, and that creates a curiosity. Almost like, oh, that's kind of funny. But if you give it a value and say, well, this is better than this, or this is inferior to that, all of a sudden, in a day, you can turn a class of loving kids into predators. So just for fun, uh, the next day she reversed the experiment, and she said she had made a, a big mistake, that, that actually brown-eyed children were superior to blue-eyed children, and the results were almost identical. At a 25-year reunion, the class came back and said it was, the, it was the most impactful day of education they'd had in their lifetime to realize how quickly one input or one phrase or a couple of statements could make them treat fellow human beings in a different way. Now, I, I experienced this when I went to Africa. And it was kind of, a, kind of a fun and playful thing at first. But when I went to Africa, uh, Liberia, a year and a half ago, um, I went to places where they had never seen a white person before. And so everywhere we were going, we hear this, Wipuga, Wipuga, which was a boss way to say, white man, white man. And all the kids from the village would run, you know, Wipuga, Wipuga. They'd follow us around. And, and the little kids were real curious. They would touch our skin, our hair, and look at us and just kind of uh, like fasting until their older brothers and sisters uh, told them that we were like mean, evil things. And they would go like, Wipuga, Wipuga. And they'd put their little kids and they'd shove them in our face and the kids would go, ah, and they'd run away, right? So now the, the village playfulness turned into this kid, these, these brothers and sisters pushing their little brothers and sisters toward us and going, ah, Wipuga, Wipuga. And the kids would just run all over the place. And the older kids thought it was hilarious. But for the younger kids, what was curious, what was, that's different, that's kind of cool, became, oh, that's different, that's really bad. But that happened to me. I, I distinctly remember as a five or six-year-old boy in a hospital reception area, um, uh, playing with a kid of a different group. He, he didn't look like me. And I remember playing on the floor and hanging out, and an adult grabbed my hand and said, Psst, come over here, don't play with him. He's dirty. And I thought in my mind, I don't understand. Dirty, he didn't take a shower. He didn't smell. I don't understand. I mean, if he doesn't look like me, he's, he's not, I shouldn't play with him. And, and one comment by an adult as a five or six-year-old started to make me question, like, why is that? Why is that we shouldn't play with them? And now all of a sudden you start to realize that comments and traditions and things that sometimes adults say can affect the way we look at certain groups. And you take this to an extreme, you get to a place where you have a place like Auschwitz or a place like Rwanda or a place like Bosnia or a place like Sudan, where people kill each other because of, of where they came from or what they look like. In fact, he, here's the idea. They call it ethnic cleansing. 
The ethnic cleansing idea is, uh, I wish I could kill every single person, man, woman, and child, who looks like that or has a certain name or lives in a certain place. I've never met all these people, but, but I would like the world to be rid of them. It'd be a better place. Now, here's the, here's the weirdest thing about that. If I took you back to Germany in the 40s and put a, a, a German Gentile and a German Jew next to you and said, okay, pick them out. Most of you'd be like, well, maybe that one? If I put a Hutu and a Tutsi from Rwanda next to each other and you go, which one, which one is superior and inferior? Which one should die? You'd be like, I, I, can't, I can't even really tell. You put a Serbian and a Croatian next to each other, you, 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 you don't know. But the thing is, that that insidiousness of this is our group and, and they're bad from, from the very beginning creates this kind of conflict. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about this group mentality. It has a lot to say about how people successively navigated it and how they failed miserably. And we're going to look at a couple of uh, examples in the Bible. And the first one is Numbers chapter 12. So if you have a Bible and you want to look at Numbers chapter 12, or you see it on the big screen, this is an example of what God thinks when someone uh, leaves someone out because of their group. This is Moses having a conversation with his brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, and it has to do with the type of woman that Moses married. So let me set it up for you. Moses married a woman from Cush or Ethiopia, so she didn't look like him. And this became an issue in a conflict that they had in Numbers chapter 12. It says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Anytime you hear that phrase, the Lord heard this, it's not going to be good. (laughs) Not going to be good. Because you know God hears everything. It's like, you know, me and my brother used to be hanging out in our our room and my dad would come up and said, you know, the conversation you had, I heard that. That's that's never a good sign. Um, And God is basically, I'm I'm hearing something that's just, ugly. And, and, and Miriam is basically, basically saying, you know what? You shouldn't have married someone like her because she's not like us. She's not one of us, Moses. And, and we're making a decision now. We're leading all these people and you need to be taking advice probably from me because I'm your older sister. I mean, I'm the one that helped save your life. I'm the one that's giving you advice. I'm the one that's helped lead the people. So right now, and what Miriam's really doing, she, she's fighting for power and control. She, she, she feels threatened by Moses' wife, and so she brings up a racial issue or a group issue and saying, she's not like us, so you shouldn't listen to her anymore. And God hears this, and God goes, okay, all right. Let me, let me do something for you to teach you a very important lesson. And so you look at what he does to Miriam in verse 9, or in verse 10, it says, when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous, as white as snow. All right. Miriam was concerned that Moses' wife was not white enough. So God made Miriam white, 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 like leprosy white. Now all of a sudden, color mattered. It color mattered to her because guess what? If you had leprosy in these days, you were part of another group. You were part of the castigated group that was segregated from the whole community. So now Miriam had to leave her group and wander around in the desert hoping and praying that God would heal her because if God didn't heal her, she would never be back in the community again. Now, isn't that like God to teach a lesson where Miriam says, she's not part of our group. This is what it's like to be on the inside where we make decisions. She doesn't understand us. She's not like us. God says, okay, let me take you and put you on the outside and give you a little taste of what that world is like. And she repented. 
because she realized, what was I doing? What was I thinking? I'm I'm mad at Moses' wife because she's not like me. She doesn't look like me. That's right. God created her in his image, just like he created me in his image. And God didn't make mistakes. He, He made people different for a reason. And all of a sudden you realize that sometimes we need to be challenged by the things that we say or do when it comes to someone from another group. Well, Jesus, he entered a world that was very, very segregated in these groups. In the world Jesus entered, men and women didn't really hang out or talk together. Jews and Gentiles really didn't hang out together. Jews and Samaritans and Greeks didn't hang out together. It was a very, very segregated. Rich and poor didn't hang out together. And he entered this world full of these very defined groups. And here was the problem with Jesus. He didn't understand this whole group thing. So his disciples were always saying to him, hey, Jesus, you really shouldn't be hanging out with these people. Hey, Jesus, you really shouldn't say this to that group. That's not really working. That's not how it is here. Let us explain how it is here. Here's how it is. And Jesus, he he was resistant to that. And Jesus had disciples that were so group focused. I mean, Nathaniel, one of his 12 disciples said this when he heard about Jesus. The Messiah, Messiah from Nazareth? (laughs) No way. There is nothing good that can come out of Nazareth. What, What good can come out of Nazareth? Have you guys ever had like one of those stereotypes before, one of those generalizations where you, you have a bad interaction with someone from Nazareth or someone of a certain group and you're like, I didn't like that person. They were lazy or arrogant. They were filled with themselves or they, they were greedy or they were, they were a thief. So since I had a bad interaction with one or two people like that, then, then I'm going to take that and put it on the millions of people in the world that are like them. Well, Nathaniel did that. He probably had some bad interactions with Nazareth. And he said, because I had bad interactions with these people, there's nothing good that can come out of that whole city. You mean hundreds, maybe thousands of people? N- nothing. Nothing good can come out of that city. See what happened? And it can happen to us real quickly if we're not careful. And God, God wants us to think through what that means. And sometimes we have to repent and say, God, I'm sorry I had that, that attitude because the Bible says to be very careful. James 3, 9. Be very careful that with your mouth you don't praise God and at the next second, You curse someone who's made in his likeness. Don't do that. Well, Jesus is breaking all the rules. Jesus is talking to people he shouldn't talk to. And in John chapter four, he purposely goes and talks to a woman that he shouldn't talk to and has a conversation with her. And I want to show you uh, that conversation in John chapter four. So again, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John four. And if not, you can look on the screen. He approaches this woman. And in John chapter four, Verse four, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Which is to say, Jesus went out of his way or did something that wasn't culturally acceptable to interact with someone. And that's going to be true of us. If you're going to interact with someone of a different group, you're probably going to have to go out of your way. Because your group is your group. You get their phone numbers, you hang out together, you do dinner together. But if you're going to get outside your group, you're going to have to intentionally do something to step outside the group. And Jesus said, all right, here we go. He sits down at this well, and has a conversation with the woman. And he doesn't approach her this way. He doesn't approach her by saying, I'm the Messiah, you're a sinner, I have all the answers to your problems, I can help you. Because sometimes, when we go from one group to another, we go with all we have to offer. I've got so much to offer you. Jesus goes to this woman and makes himself vulnerable. He makes himself weak. He says, could you please get me a drink? I don't have anything to draw with. You're like, whoa, what what is he doing? He's making himself like 
needy in front of someone who's, who he shouldn't even be talking to. Now, now watch her reaction. He makes himself vulnerable, and he says this. Will you give me a drink? In verse 9, the woman says, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's like, Hello? Don't you know the rule? The rule is we're not supposed to be having this conversation. Let me remind you, this is not kosher for us to be having this conversation. We can't be having it. And he persists. He makes himself vulnerable, and then he listens to her. So if you're going to follow the example of Jesus and say, how do I break through a barrier? You're going to make your, you're going to go out of your way. You're, you're going to, you're going to ask questions instead of tell, and you're going to listen. And you're going to try to hear what she's saying. And they have this whole great conversation, this great conversation about what living water is and, and how to get it. And, and, and she starts to get more and more excited. Like, I, I want this living water. I, I, I want what you have. And, and you would think Jesus would say, well, well, here it is. But Jesus creates an awkward moment in their conversation. And the awkward moment is he's, he's going to go right to the place of sin and brokenness in her life. And we're going to see how she responds. In John chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus intentionally says, go and call your husband and come back. In other words, go get your husband and let's talk about this because we're really getting somewhere. And she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus makes it awkward. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. (laughs) Jesus didn't take etiquette classes like, you know, how to win friends and influence people. He failed those classes because he could create really difficult conversations in the middle of really good conversations, and that's what he did. He says, lady, we, we both know you're here at the well all by yourself in the middle of the day because you're part of cast out, even in your own culture, even in your own group. You don't fit anywhere. And I know that. And, and I'm here to confront that because something in you needs to change. So, so, so here's what she does. She responds in a typical group, group fashion. Her response is, first, I can see you're a prophet. You just told me my whole life. But then she goes on to say this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we're supposed to worship is Jerusalem. What did she do? She completely changed the subject. I mean, he says, you know, you don't, you don't, the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Basically, like, what about that? She's like, well, where are we supposed to worship? You say this, you Jews say this, and we say this. What do you say? What's that defense? That defense is this. Wait, wait a second. I'm very uncomfortable. I'm very, very uncomfortable. Let me go back to the group thing. Um, You Jews are over here, and we Samaritans over here, we don't agree, so let's end the conversation because that barrier is there for a reason. That's what happens sometimes. When you get into an awkward conversation from someone in a different group, there's a defense mechanism that may rise up to go, wait a second, we're not that much alike. So I don't want to go there because I might feel bad or you might feel bad or this might get awkward. So we're going to end the conversation because we're from different groups. And Jesus has a great response. He says, you know what? There is coming a day where true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And those are the worshipers that God desires. It's not going to be about the mountain. It's not going to be about Jerusalem. And he paints this picture for her. And she leaves so excited that she runs back to her village in the Samaritan village. And, and all of a sudden, all the village starts to come out. Now, in the meantime, the disciples have come back and they're like, Jesus, you, you didn't follow the group thing again. You weren't supposed to be talking to her. And now, look, the whole city's coming out. And Jesus says, hey, guys, look up. Look, look up at the town. They're coming out to hear the gospel. Guys, I want, you to, I want you to see this. The fields are white under harvest. 
the gospel is bigger than your group. And that, that was Jesus' message for them at that moment. The gospel is bigger than your group, guys. This is a group of people you would never talk to. This is a group of people you would never, never hang out with. But here they come, and we're going to interact right now because the gospel is bigger than your group. Guys, get ready. And they started to kind of make this progress like, oh, man, this is really uncomfortable. A whole life we were told we can't hang out or talk to these people. And now you're saying, sit down, eat with them, give them a hug, share my love. And they're like, oh, man, this is like, I think it feels right, but it feels weird. And the church started to make this progression from we are only a group of Jews chosen. We live in Jerusalem. We hang out together. We understand each other too. Well, Jesus said, you know, Jesus said this gospel for the world. And he said in Acts 1, you wait in Jerusalem and I'm going to pour my spirit on you. And you're going to share and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, that, that means we share the gospel with people that aren't in our group. I mean, we start with people like us and then we go to people that are a little less like us and then people that are Samaritans. That's uncomfortable. But, but Greeks, Romans, like pagans? Yeah. And then you start to see people like Philip who go to Samaria and preach the gospel and there's this huge revival and the church goes, can that happen? Samaritans, they've received the Holy Spirit? I mean, really, like, 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 for real? Yeah, they were baptized and everything. So the church would send people to check it out. Yeah, it's legit, man. These people are really got saved. And, and then you see Philip preach the Ethiopian eunuch and this Ethiopian guy gets saved and he goes back to Ethiopia and brings the gospel there. You see Peter hang out with Cornelius, the centurion, and Cornelius gets saved in his whole household. Now it starts to spread to the Greeks and Romans, and soldiers start to get saved. And, and, and now all of a sudden, it, the gospel is expanding. It, it's getting more and more for the world, what God always intended it to be. And still, people are a little bit uncomfortable by it. And then there's this church that starts in Acts chapter 13. And I want you to look at Acts 13.1, because this church is the place where Christians were first called Christians. You see, before the church became Christianity, it was a sect of Judaism. Like people went, there's Jews and there's Jews that believe in Messiah. So this is the Jewish people and this is the sect of Judaism that believes the Messiah has come. Eventually, the Christians became called the sect, called the way. But the first place that they were called Christians was this place called Antioch. And this church, Antioch, was different than any other church that had ever existed before. It was a church of Greeks and Jews who worshiped together. You see, before, a Jewish person may have gone out of their way and talked to a Greek person. Maybe, but they necessarily wouldn't eat with them or worship with them or hang out with them. And the church of Antioch was kind of one of these experiments. You know, if the gospel is really bigger than the group, than our group, then what if we all worshiped together? And what if we had common leadership? What would happen then? Acts chapter 13, verse 1, they list five men who led this church in Antioch, and I want to read their names because they're significant. In the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who, they call, Manian who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. You look at those names and you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Well, look at the first name, Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite, a man who was studied Levitical law. He understood the Old Testament so well, but he was from Cyprus. He wasn't from Jerusalem. So he had a little bit of a, of a Greek mindset, of a worldly mindset, but understood the Old Testament. Then, then you have uh, Simeon the Niger, a man, obviously, from Africa. Not like Barnabas' group, not much at all. Then you have Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene is in Libya, another man from Africa in leadership. Then you have Manian, who is brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a man who is brought up in royalty, 
a man who was brought up in status. I mean, he was with the king. He had power. He could watch the, the dad go off in his head and the guy got killed. Uh, burn that city down, they'd burn it down. Take all that money and use it. And he watched power brokers his whole life. And then you have Saul, educated by Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish minds of the time, but understanding the Greek culture and, and schooled in philosophy. And these five guys could not have been more diverse. And they were the leadership of this church. Now, here's the thing about Antioch. This is the discovery of the church of Antioch. That race and group and background was not an obstacle to be overcome. It was a power to be unleashed on the world. Think about that for a second. Race wasn't something, group wasn't like, oh man, I don't know, we're all different, and I don't know if this is really going to work, and grandma doesn't find out. No, 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 let's put it up here, and let's say, listen, if the gospel is for every man, then let's make it for every man in the way we lead and the way we make decisions. And you'll notice that all the mission trips of the New Testament church emanated for Antioch out. When Paul went on a mission trip and came back, he always came back to Antioch because there was something about that diversity, something about the power of that example that made him excited about the gospel because he was out there bringing the gospel to every man. And as the church started taking these steps forward, there were also some steps backwards. Because I don't know if you've ever taken a step out like, all right, I'm going to take a step. This is really uncomfortable. I think it's the right move. And you take it and you're like, okay. And then all of a sudden you start to feel this pressure from people like, hey, what are you doing over there? Um, I'm just hanging out. I mean, maybe, maybe you got saved. I experienced this when I got saved. I become a Christian and my non-Christian friends are like, hey, hey, come back, come party with us. Come, you're like, um, I'm not that person anymore. I'm really a new person. I'm really a different person. Well, well, Peter was one of these guys that made this step to say, I'm going to hang out with Gentiles. I, I was with Cornelius. I, I saw him when he received the gospel. I love this. And so he's at Antioch, and for the first time, he's watching the Greeks and Jews kind of all hang out together in worship and food. And so he's, he's hanging out at the table with all this new Gentile friends. And he's having a great time. But then some people from Jerusalem, some of his old friends, show up. And in the book of Galatians, Peter and Paul had this confrontation that happens, and kind of like in the middle of church, in front of everybody. And it's about groups. And I want to show it to you in Galatians 2. And again, you'll see that it's on the big screen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul writing. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when he arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And you notice that word group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that even by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line of the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, and you can underline in front of them all, because again, this was an awkward moment. You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So imagine they're having dinner. The day before Peter was hanging out with his Gentile friends, the Jews came and he felt this pressure like, okay, guys, um, I'll be like back in a little bit. I can't hang out with you right now. I got to hang out with them. And then his friend's like, well, why were you hanging out with them? They're not like us. They're not like really our group. I know they're Christians and everything, but you remember the line? You know, that line's important. We were taught that line. And Peter's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And Paul says, you know what? That's hypocrisy. That, that was hypocrisy. You played the hypocrite right there. And he confronted him in front of everybody. And we know from the gospel accounts and the epistles that, that Peter embraced that failure, repented, and, and he began to embrace further what the Gentile community meant 
um, to the new church. And you know also that Barnabas was one of those same things, but that was one of those awkward moments. Now, I wanna, I wanna share with you a little bit about my story because for me, I grew up in this community. I grew up in Plantation, so just a few miles away. I went to Plantation Park Elementary. I went to Seminole Middle School. I went to South Plantation High School. And when I graduated, 18 years old, I got saved, became a Christian. So I'm a brand new Christian, lived in this community my whole life. And, and one day it struck me. All my friends are like me. Every single one of them. I mean, if, if there's any place where you, you can find people of different races or groups or backgrounds, South Florida's got to be it. And I realized I don't have any friends that aren't like me. They all think like me. They all laugh at the same jokes. They all like the same teams. They're all like me. So I, I went to school at FIU, Florida International University, which at the time had about a 60% Cuban population. And I learned a lot of things. I mean, at homework projects, I would sit with guys and they would tell me about how their parents came over on the Mariota boat lift and, and the history of Cuba. I would sit and eat rice, white rice and black beans, which I never had put together before. I'm like, what, what, that's, that's it? And then they'd fry bananas. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You never fry plantains before? No, I never had that. That looks disgusting. Like, try one. Like, wow, this is really good. This is really good. And all of a sudden, my world started expanding. I, I realized not everyone saw the same world as I saw through the same eyes that I saw it. And then I became a youth pastor, started working with kids, and a lot of the kids in my youth group were either African-American or Haitian-American. And I learned a whole bunch of cultural lessons like, well, I never knew that. You mean in your neighborhood, that's how that happens? I never knew that. You see the world that way? Wow. I never knew that. And then when I was a senior in college, I went to Atlanta with a group of friends, um, and we moved into an inner city housing project, and we worked in the inner city Atlanta, working with, with, with kids that were disadvantaged that needed support. And, and we worked from all over the southeast, and they basically roomed us, the college interns, by race and by group. So if you were Indian, you were hanging out with a white guy. If you were black, you were hanging out with a Spanish guy. And they roomed us. And I roomed with an African-American guy named Tony. And, and, you know, when you're in college and you work all day and then you have these, like, philosophical discussions, like, till 12, 1, 2 in the morning. And, and all of a sudden, you're, like, having these conversations like this. Like, you mean your group looks at us this way or we look at that way? That's not right. You mean you interpret the Bible this way or you see it that way? No, that's not right. I didn't, mean, I didn't mean that. And all of a sudden, you start to feel like, man, this is real uncomfortable. I mean, I liked it better when I saw the world the way I saw it and it all made sense and I didn't have to deal with all the different views of everything. I, I was good that way. This is very uncomfortable, but all of a sudden, the world got bigger. All of a sudden, the gospel started to mean more. All of a sudden, I realized, this is a gospel for the world, and if we're all created in the image of God, then I've got to take some steps that make me a little bit uncomfortable so I can learn. But probably the greatest step for me, personally, was when I got a phone call uh, 12 and a half years ago, and the phone call went something like this. Hey, Doug, there's a little baby that's been born, and he's going to be born in a week. And this, if this is the adoptive son that you and your wife have prayed for, he's here. A little bit about him. Uh, first thing is, he's biracial. His father, his father was black and his mother was white. And is that a problem? Uh, hmm, let me see. I don't think it's a problem. Well, let, me, let me think about it for a second. So my wife and I, we're good with that, but what about her parents? What about my parents? What about my friends? Is that going to be uncomfortable when he's a teenager? Like, what's going to happen? What, what, what's his grandma going to say? What's, what's my grandma going to say? Hmm. Wow. You know what? We, we went through all those objections, but we knew God was saying, take the step. And so we took this step, and 12 and a half years later, our son Jackson is here. I want to show you a picture of him on the big screen, because I'm, I'm a proud dad. What can I say? All right, now, there's nothing like um, 
When you, when you say, hey, let's, let's adopt a biracial child, what do you think, grandma? It's kind of like this, kind of like this kind of thing over here, like, ooh, I don't know, that's uncomfortable. But when she meets Jackson, all of a sudden, everything's different. Because, you know, when a little kid goes, grandma, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's all over. I mean, it's all over. And you start to see a little child start to break down barriers that have existed for a really long time. Then we have a biological son uh, named Caden, and I'll show you his picture. He's 10. And then we have an eight-year-old uh, son that we adopted through foster care, through four kids, and his name is Kennedy. So um, when we go to the mall all together, um, we look like the United Nations. So I want to show you a picture on the, uh, of all of us together so you kind of get, get a feel of what it's like. Now, now, we get the kind of awkward question sometimes, and the questions go something like this. So, so like, in front of the kids, too, it's a little, are they all yours? Yeah, they're all mine. I got the food bill from Publix to prove it if you don't believe me. <laughs> no, are they really yours? You know, like, they're really ours. They really are ours. And it's this amazing thing. And, and sometimes people say, you know, I, I get tired of going, you know, I got one son who's black, one son who's biracial, one son who's white. So I, I, I just call them, I call them chocolate, vanilla, and mocha. And that's my way to say, in a really fun way, that the diversity of God should have some fun with it, should have some flavor with it. It shouldn't just be technical. It shouldn't just be like, ugh, like that. And and here's the thing I figured out through this whole thing when we look at the family of God. What I figured out was that we will start to love each other like we're supposed to love each other when we see each other like family. And here's what I mean by that. You see, when I was a teacher, when I was working with kids as a youth pastor and a kid came up and said, hey man, they called me this name, this slur, or I'm not part of their group, or they didn't let me play with them because I'm not like them. I would get mad. Like the justice part of me, I was mad. Like that's wrong. That is wrong. But it's a whole different story when your son comes home for you and says, hey, you know, when I was in the playground, they called me this name and said I couldn't play with him. And now I'm his dad. I'm like, oh, give me their name and numbers. I'm going to go break their legs right now. Let's go. Let's go. We're going we're to make a lesson then publicly because now that, that's affecting my son. My son's crying on my lap. Now, this is no joke anymore because now it's personal because now, now this is my son. And if we're going to see the human family, if we're going to see God's family in the way we're supposed to, it should be that when you look next to the person in this room that maybe is older than you or younger than you or different gender than you or different color from you or from different country than you or speaking a different language from you, that that shouldn't matter at all except for the fact that the most important thing about what binds this group together is that we were adopted by God and we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that's not a spiritual metaphor. That's not like some theological, that, that's a biblical truth. It's a practical truth. So I want you to look next to each other and just look at a couple people. That's your brother and sister in Christ. That, that's what it is, for real. And Galatians describes this process, and this is where we close. Galatians chapter 3. It says, You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have been clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Then you're Abraham's seed, and if you're Abraham's seed, you're heirs according to the promise. Here was the other discovery I had. You know, not everyone here, or not everyone in this world, in this community, is a child of God. We're, we're all brothers and sisters as a part of the human family if we trace ourselves back from Adam and Eve. So I can walk into anyone on the street and go, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister from Adam, part of the human family. But only... People that call God Father or people that call God Father were the ones that he adopted. Were the ones that received him. And that's part of the process by which you evaluate. Do I belong to God? Am I a son or daughter of God? 
The answer is, if he's adopted you, if you ask Christ into your life, then the answer is yes. But if you haven't, then that's a step that God still wants you to take because his hands are open and now starts saying, I would adopt you. I would love you. I would lavish my love for you because I sent my son Jesus as a way for you to become a part of my family. I want to close with a few pictures because part of our process of walking through this for me was, I don't want to be the only weird family that has people that look different than me in the family. And so we decide we're going to decide to hang out with people who are crazy like us. So I want to show you a picture of one of the families we hang out with. This is the Williams family. And, and uh, so we hang out with them and people will give us even more looks because the crowd gets bigger. And we go on the next page to see the, the, the Ramsrand family. R- Ruben's Indian and Jamaican. So he taught me that you can put curry in omelets and they taste better than any other omelets you've ever had before because he puts curry in everything and he carries Tabasco sauce in his pocket. Uh, but that's a whole other story. And then you look at the next uh, picture and you see the John family. And then you look at the next picture, and you see uh, the Lowe family, and, uh, we, and, and then the Lacey family uh, is part of that group. And when we all go camping together, or we all hang out somewhere together, we do look like the United Nations. But, and it's like cheap entertainment, because people are sitting by, watching us walk by on the beach or somewhere, and they're like, they're trying to figure it out. Like, I, I don't understand that. And, and it really is cheap entertainment, because they come and ask you some of the most uh, funny questions. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the power of God's family. And my prayer and my hope is that you embrace this and you, you take one step because today that's all I'm asking. I mean, some of you go, man, I need to read a little more because well, he gave me a lot of Bible and I need to read and make sure this is accurate. And I encourage you to do that. Some of you, you go, I, I need to repent. I've had a horrible attitude toward a certain group. Um, but most of you know what you need to do is, is just take a step. I want to take one step to go outside of my group and, and, and meet someone who's in a different socioeconomic status or a different race or a different gender or a different, from a different background. I'm just going to take that one step. And you're going to find, if you take that step, that God will bless it and open your mind to the world because Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says that there will be a day where we will stand before the throne of God and people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language will sing in a common voice to God. And that is what we call heaven. And we have a chance to get just a piece of that here on earth as we embrace God's family. And that's my prayer for you guys today. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your big family. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for every person who's here. Father, help us to take the step that you've challenged us today. And by your spirit, open up our world and make your gospel great in the way that we live our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.